Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an acclaimed Welsh writer, journalist and LGBTQ plus rights activist. As the founder and host of the award-winning literary salon Polari and the creator of the Polari Book Prize, he's an active promoter of LGBTQ plus stories and writers and the author of six novels, four non-fiction books, the editor of two short story collections. He's also made four documentaries. Well, in his new, honest and inspiring memoir, We Can Be Heroes, A Survivor's Journey, he tracks his trip of coming out in the 1980s, experiencing the horrors of AIDS in London and dealing with lifelong struggles with trauma and shame, tracing his steps to becoming the influential activist and artist he is today. He is Paul Burston. Welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have you here because your book is so interesting, but also I think that so many owe you so much for the fight that you have really taken to the government, to the bigots, to people all over the world and and really tried to make this and indeed succeeded in many instances for making it a fairer world for everyone. Well, I mean, I think I was part of a much wider struggle and there were many other people involved in the activism, certainly, that I was involved in. But I've always thought of my subsequent career in writing and as a promoter as an extension of that activism. And I think that creating platforms to give marginalised voices an opportunity is also activism. And creating the Polari Salon and the Book Prize was very much about my frustration at the lack of stories or the shortage of stories. I mean, as an author, I experienced so many times in the early part of my career rejection letters from editors saying, does this character have to be gay? Mm. You know, things have changed a lot now. Mm. But 20 years ago, that was quite commonplace. Explain what Polari is. Well, Polari is a gay slang that was very popular in the pre-liberation era, especially the sort of 1960s. There was a television, a radio show, sorry, called Round the Horn with Kenneth Williams that launched in 1965, the year I was born. And they had two characters called Julian and Sandy, and they spoke in Polari. And Polari was a way for gay men in this country to communicate. It was like a coded way of communicating at a time when being explicit could have got you arrested. Mm. So when the idea for the salon came along, I was DJing. I, I was a DJ for a while. Not a, not a very good one, but I was a DJ for a while in a club, in, in a bar, sorry, in Soho. And they asked me to host a regular night, and I decided that I would do it, but only if I could have a an element of live literary readings and poetry and so on. And I had to think of a name really quickly. And so Polari just jumped into my head because I thought, well, to me, that means literally gay words. Yeah. So it seemed the obvious name. Yeah. And of course, you first came across Polari, as you say, listening to Round the Horn. But here you were, you were in small town Wales, this extraordinary child who started dyeing his hair, wearing makeup, acting out, basically. Yeah. And it was a difficult time. I mean, you you write about your time at school where, of course, there was bullying and so on. But then you get elected onto the school council. You get to sit in on staff meetings. That was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life because I was not a popular kid. And I think what happened was that in the sixth form, I was a prefect because I was always academic. But I think the student body as a whole... They elected me not because they liked me, but because they knew that it would really annoy the headmaster because I looked like such a freak. And to be fair to him, I mean, he did ask for another vote. 
<laughs> and then the vote came back even stronger in my favour. And he did ask me to tone it down a bit. And I did tone it down a bit for the meetings. Yeah. But it was quite an extraordinary mixture because I was on the one hand really unpopular and still being bullied, not as badly in the sixth one as I had when I was younger, but still a bit. At the same time, I was also sitting on this board and sort of interviewing teachers for jobs. I mean, it was quite mad. Tell us the Mr Wheeler story. I love that story. <laughs> there was a teacher who I call Mr Wheeler in the book who I always clashed with many, many times. And he was applying for a more senior position in the school from the department that he was working in. When I was told this, I went to the headmaster and said, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to be on this interview panel because I have these issues with this teacher, but on a personal level. And the headmaster said, well, that's very, very big of you and I respect that. And shortly afterwards, Mr Wheeler went storming into the headmaster's office to demand that I be taken off this panel. And the headmaster told him that I'd I'd already come forward and shown far more maturity than he had. (laughs) And he still didn't get the job. So that was very gratifying. But you go back to the school later. Yes, several years later, I was doing a lot of freelancing and I was freelancing for the Sunday Times magazine. And it was at a time when there was a lot of stories in the newspapers and in the media about teenage boys falling behind at school, even in subjects where they traditionally had been excelling and girls were doing better than the boys. So several writers were sent back to their secondary schools to talk to young teenage boys. And I went back to my comprehensive in Wales and went to the staff room to meet the teacher who was going to show me round. And Mr Wheeler was sat there and I came in and he said... Oh, you're writing for the Sunday Times. I suppose someone's got to. And I said, oh, you're still here. I suppose someone's got to be. (laughs) (laughs) It was a pretty unhappy time at school, though. And really, all you could think about was getting out. Yeah. And you sort of almost self-sabotaged by not getting into Loughborough University so that you could end up in town at Strawberry Hill at Queen Mary's, where you did religion and English and drama. Quickly dropping the religion, it must be said. But this was really the beginning of your life as an artist. Completely. I mean, I'd always been interested in the arts. I'd always been a really keen reader. I sort of started writing and abandoned so many novels as a teenager, usually strongly influenced by whichever writer I was into at at that time. But going to St Mary's and going to the drama department in particular, actually, because English was taught in the way that I'd been taught all my life, which was you studied the text and you analysed the text. Whereas the drama course, because it was also practical, you sort of unpacked it all and you saw how text worked and how things came to life and how dialogue worked and how you stage things and shape them. And for me, that was so eye-opening. It changed my whole perspective on what writing could be. And my first instinct by the end of college was that I wanted to be involved in the theatre. And it took me back because when I was a kid, I was really obsessed with marionette puppets. I used to have little marionette shows I used to put on for my parents when I was a kid and for my, and for my neighbours. But I got involved in fringe theatre when I left college in 1987. And I did a couple of things that I was quite proud of, but I just found the collaborative nature of it very restricting because I realised that I was actually quite singular in the way that I wanted to go about things. And even though I was often writing and directing and on one occasion acting not very well in a play... I didn't have complete control, Mm. and I like to be in control. Now, the book starts with you lurking outside heaven at the time, the biggest gay club in Europe, I think, and really not having the courage to go in. And then gradually, as the book goes on, you go back, you go in. 
by the time we really get into full flow, you are Mr. Club. You know everything about every club. You are also heavily into drinks and into drugs. But this story kind of unfolds and we see every stage. And I love that and the way you you name check all these various people that we have heard of or we begin to hear of during the book. And it seemed to me that the writing, your journalism, came out again from this instinct of activism. Oh, completely. I mean, I became an activist because when I was involved in ACTA, which was the AIDS activist group that I was in, so many of our demonstrations, or ZAPs as we called them, were misreported or not reported on. And I felt very frustrated at the fact that we were doing what we felt was the right thing. Of course, people are welcome to disagree with that. But it didn't get the media coverage that I always wanted. And I realised that the one way to do that was to basically cut out the middleman and become the journalist Mm -hmm. and tell the story myself. So I started pitching ideas to, at the time, the gay free papers initially, and also to a magazine called City Limits that was a kind of rival to Time Out, and started getting commissions. So I started off as a freelancer. And then I met through... I had a part-time job at a gay policing project called Gallup, which is now an anti-violence project, but back then was more of a police monitoring project. And through that, I met a guy called Brian Kennedy, who was was then called the gay editor at City Limits. And he asked me if I would fill in for him because he was going on a holiday. And I didn't know this at the time, but he wasn't going on holiday. He was actually ill. And so subsequently, Brian sadly passed away. And then I took over that position after he passed away. Mm. And that was my first staff position on a magazine. Subsequently, I I applied and got the same job at Time Out when that became available, again, because the person that was doing it before me had died. So I had this strange mixture of my career accelerated very quickly for my age, but those positions only became available because the older generation were dying of AIDS. So I had this lot of survivor guilt about it. Mm, mm. Even though I was enjoying the success, there was a part of me that felt like I hadn't really earned it. I want to come back to the whole HIV yeah. issue in a moment. But first of all, would you tell us then about starting your own magazine? Well, I was working for Time Out. I was working for various gay magazines at the time and In the early 90s, there was a really big pressure on gay voices in the mainstream media to toe the party line on things. And I was never that person. I was somebody who wanted to speak my mind. And I was very conscious of the fact that at Time Out, the books editor, the theatre editor, the film editor wasn't expected to like every single book, theatre piece or play that they or film that they watched. And I was expected to rave about everything gay. And I think that's really not what journalism is there for. Mm. You were expected to be a cheerleader, really. So by sort of 93, 94, I'd met a couple of people of like mind and we decided to launch our own magazine. So we had this idea to launch Attitude magazine. And we had so much bad press within the gay press. There was so, so much vitriol directed at us because we were published by a not a gay publisher, as if that were the be all and end all. And people were very hostile to it initially. But I think we proved a point, which is that you could launch a magazine aimed at mainly gay readers, gay male readers, that didn't appeal to the lowest common denominator, which is what I felt at the time so much of the gay press did. Mm. And I was very proud of what we did. I still am very proud of what we did. I think it was a really big step in the evolution of gay journalism in this country. It was partly inspired by Out magazine in America, which had launched a couple of years before us. We saw at that time there was a lot of interest. There was a lot of talk in the media about the pink pound and lots of large companies 
corporates were seeing that there was potential for marketing to this gay market who were often double income, no kids, and had a large... You know, so therefore, they, their spending patterns were different. They were more likely to buy designer goods, perhaps. So we saw that opportunity, and that was a way of getting the, the revenue for the magazine. Obviously, there are people that have issues around that. There's lots of talk now about pinkwashing and corporations that suddenly change their Twitter handle to a rainbow flag for one month a year, mm. and only in areas where it's safe to do so. So there are issues around all of that. But at the time, it was the only way of getting a magazine funded that wasn't owned by existing gay commercial interests. It needed to be independent, and I needed for it to be independent that I was free to say whatever I wanted to say. And that was so important to me as an editor. And the people that I employed, I was only, I was only there for the first year, but the people that I brought on board were all what we'd call mavericks in some one way or another. They were people that were quite outspoken and they didn't tow party lines on things. Mm. So they were often very conflicting voices. You know, we'd have often columns that were often debating quite hot topics and being quite extreme in their opinion on either side of a debate. There's always been this split in LGBTQ activism between the sort of direct activists who are noisy and the sort of polite activists who are more into talking behind closed doors and, and negotiation. And that's fine. I think you need both strands. But I came very much from the direct action background, so my, my approach was less polite. Mm. I think it's really important for our listeners to put all of this into context because Britain, particularly at that time, but indeed pretty much worldwide, we were in a state where there were repressive laws. Section 28, of course, was something that was being fought. Also, you're seeing the beginnings of people dying from AIDS. You're seeing violence, really horrible homophobic violence. Just talk us through that atmosphere at the time. Well, I mean, the, the mid-'80s onwards, I came out in 1985, and that period, certainly in London, in London where I was living, but I think across the country, was incredibly hostile. And there were places where you were safe and there were places where you really weren't safe. The laws... The age of consent for gay men was 21 compared to 16 for heterosexuals. We had no employment rights or partnership rights. We had Section 28 on the horizon and the AIDS epidemic. And all of those things together created this climate of such intense homophobia. When I was writing the book, I went and looked at archives of newspapers and magazines from the time. And even broadsheets that you'd think better of, some of the coverage around the AIDS crisis was pretty homophobic. And the tabloids were relentless. I mean, it was you know stories about I'd shoot my son if they were gay or if they had AIDS, things like that. And when the media is saturated with that kind of discourse, that feeds into how people behave and how they treat you. <laughs> and there was a period in the late 80s in particular, I think about 86, 87, where the level of homophobic violence that I was witnessing and also experiencing in London was just off the scale. I mean, it was horrendous. It was partly in, in response to the AIDS epidemic that we were seen as being plague carriers. And it was also to do with the fact that we had a government that was whipping this up with Section 28 and this idea that the gays were out to get your kids and all these awful stereotypes mm. around gay people being somehow predatory. And I think the environment overall was, was such a hostile one and... When the AIDS epidemic came close to home for me and I, and I saw what happened when people died and often what would happen so many times, a gay couple living together, one would die of AIDS and the estranged family would come in and kick the other guy out of the house because they had no right to be there legally because they didn't have partnership rights. So all of those things created this climate in which it was very difficult to be a well-adjusted, happy gay person because there were so many things around you telling you that you were 
bad and shameful and and all of those things. And if you grow up, I'd grown up in a culture of that as a young person. I never ever had any positive images as a kid, so you internalize it. And I think a lot of people of my generation, and I think other people of subsequent generations as well, and different communities to this day still experience this. That if you don't see yourself affirmed, you know, if you don't see characters like you on television, or you don't read books about characters like you, you feel very isolated, very alone, and the only images you're given are images that are very negative. Mm. That you're a villain, you're a figure of fun, you're a tragic figure. You internalize all those things, and it takes a lot of work on yourself to try and unpack all of that stuff and deal with it. And many people instead turn to self-medication. I mean, to this day now, the rates of drug and alcohol abuse within our community is higher than within the population at large,、mm. and these are the reasons why.、Mm. And of course, you had your own struggles with、Absolutely. this, as, as we alluded to. One particular piece in the book where you're relating to Marianne Faithful,、yeah. how you've been searched by police, and she's completely horrified. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd been in a situation where I was very into clubbing and I was very into taking party drugs. And I'd gone out into Vauxhall with some friends. Vauxhall was then one of the big gay villages in London, and I'd gone on a complete bender basically. And we were outside the club in a friend's car, trying to find the drugs that I had purchased because I couldn't find them because I was so in such an office that I couldn't find them in my pockets. And suddenly we had police surrounding the car. And they asked us to get out of the vehicle, and they searched us. They didn't find anything on me, which I still find extraordinary. I think they probably thought it was drug dealers, and when they realised it was just a bunch of clubbers, they just they'd give us a bit of a scare. I think、yeah. is what happened. But the next night, I was going for dinner with Deborah Orr, who's sadly no longer with us, who was a wonderful journalist and editor and a friend of mine, and Will Self, who was she was then married to. And the other guest was Marianne Faithful, who, and Deborah knew that I was a big fan and told me to be really cool. And we turn up at this dinner at, at Shiki's, and I was really in awe of Marianne. And we sat down, and she was very friendly and very sweet. And although I'd been told that she wasn't going to be drinking alcohol over the course of the dinner, she started ordering gin and tonics. So I started ordering drinks. And once I'd had a few drinks, I thought、oh, I'll have a quick line. So I then went off and did a line of cocaine in the toilet, which was a really dumb idea. And then, of course. When you're in an altered state like that, you're not a very good judge of a situation. So I thought I should tell Marianne this story because she'll find it really funny, given the fact that she had a history of her own to do with drugs in the past in her life, very famously arrested as with the, with the Rolling Stones. And I told her the story, thinking she would laugh, and she was absolutely horrified. <laughs> and she put her hands on my face and said, "Listen to your auntie Marianne. Never take ketamine." <laughs> I still find funny to this day. But in fact, you are completely clean now. I mean, you don't、yes. drink, you don't smoke, you don't take any drugs, which is, I mean, huge kudos to you. You write in the book about AIDS and HIV, and you point out, which I think is so relevant, that finally, with the pandemic, with COVID nineteen, youngsters who never knew about that have realised what it is that, in fact, the gay community has lived through an epidemic before. Yes, and I mean when COVID arrived, like many people, I was initially in a state of denial about it. I remember going to meet a friend and saying, "I think this thing is actually quite serious," and he said, "Oh no, I'm sure it's just it's just media, it's just media hoo ha." But then when it actually happened and we went into lockdown, it just brought back so many memories for me of that fear of other people, fear of infection, because at the start of the AIDS crisis, before one was properly informed, we didn't really understand how it was transmitted. 
It took a long time before we actually understood how it was transmitted. There was actually fear that you could catch AIDS from drinking from the same cup as somebody or touching. You know, there was all these anxieties that you had around it. Uh, which we also thought about with COVID. Absolutely, exactly. So it just triggered so many of those memories for me. And I think for younger people or people that weren't aware of what was happening during that period in the 80s and 90s, I think it allowed them to understand better what it felt like to live through a pandemic and to live to live in that state of fear and anxiety and fear of infection. Mm. So here you are, you're clubbing, you're having a good time, you're an established journalist. You make these four great documentaries for Channel 4, which takes you backwards and forwards to the United States, and then you start getting published. And suddenly you have arrived. This boy from Wales is someone. Tell us how that felt. Oh, it felt amazing. I mean, getting published and seeing my name on a book and seeing the book it never gets tired, actually, seeing your book in a bookshop. I never tire of that. Your first one was Shameless. It came out in 2001. Yeah, my first novel. And it did really well. And um, I still remember the excitement. My parents came down to visit from Wales and we went and stood outside foils because it was in the window of foils. There was a big display of it. And that excitement was incredible. That hasn't worn off. I still I still get that excitement when I see my books. It's, but nowadays, of course, it's more social media. You see people posting pictures of them of your book jacket or a little review they posted online or something like that. And that relationship with readers is more direct now. You get feedback more directly, for good and bad, because mm-hmm. Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews can be quite damning as well, yeah, obviously. Absolutely. But it was an amazing time. I did get very carried away with it. And there was a period in the early noughties where I don't think I was that great a person. I think I was a bit of a monster for a while. I think my ego got out of control. And the fact that I was taking rather a lot of cocaine at that time didn't help that, it fueled that. So I look back now with mixed feelings about it, but the positive side of it was that I had a platform and I could tell the stories I wanted to tell and I'd proven that those stories could reach a readership because the first novel did really well. Mm. So it gave me a sense of optimism that there was going to be more opportunities to tell the stories that I wanted to tell, write the characters I wanted to write, because... In this country, certainly, there weren't many books like that being published back then. Very few, actually. There was gay literary fiction. Alan Hollinghurst and exactly, so on. Exactly, yeah. and, and, which is wonderful, and I love those books. But there weren't people writing what you'd call popular commercial fiction with gay characters mm. in them. And that was very much my niche at the beginning of my career. And I enjoyed that very much because it, was, it felt a bit like an extension of what I was doing as a journalist because it was observational. It was observing the world in which I lived and the people that I knew. All the incidents and episodes that happen in Shameless happened to me or to somebody that I know, every single one of them. <laughs> Although when my mother read it, I assured her that everything was completely fictional. <laughs> and then, of course, we come to your nonfiction and this latest book. So it's called A Survivor's Story. We Can Be Heroes. Obviously, you're referencing David Bowie there. And I have to say, the whole way through reading this book, there are so many musical references. And it felt, I actually listened to it on audio. And I would absolutely recommend that to people, to listen to you reading your own words, because it's almost like there's this pulsing club beat underneath it. It just propels the book forward. It's kind of you're, you're going from breath to breath and you're feeling the highs of the clubbing and you're hearing the music and it just, I think you've wrought something amazing in the way that you've structured it. You're the first person to, to say that and I'm so pleased because I really set out to do that. Oh, you're, really? you're, you're, the, you're the first person I've spoken to that actually has noticed that. <laughs> it was very, very much, I had a, I had a soundtrack that I was playing when I was writing it. I knew which songs I was going to reference. Many of the chapter titles are song titles. 
and from that year often in which the action's taking place. And I was playing those songs on a loop while I was writing because pop music has always been so important to me. I think pop music is far more important than people often Mm realise, especially to young people. Totally. Because it it gives you a sense of belonging and a sense of being part of a tribe, which I was missing as a young gay person. And David Bowie was the first person that I discovered, although I discovered him quite late. I mean, I was it was 1979, so I'd, I'd missed the glory years of the early 70s because I was the wrong generation for that. But once I heard him and read about him and understood what he represented and what he was trying to do with pop music and also the discussion that he was raising around sexuality and gender, he was so ahead of his time in so many ways. And that, to me, was life-saving, literally. It was literally life-saving. And I had the great fortune of meeting him many years later. And I told him, in rather drunk, I was quite drunk at a party. (laughs) And I told him, and he was very funny and very sweet and very gracious, given that I was gushing and being a bit over the top. But he'd always been there as part of the soundtrack to my life. And I'd always return to him, even though there were periods of his career where I wasn't so interested in the music. I was always interested in what he had to say, because I think he was much more than a pop star. He Mm. was... You know, he had so many different arrows in his bow and so many different disciplines that he studied. So I became obsessed with... When I was still at college, I went to see Lindsay Kemp performing Flowers because David Bowie had worked with Lindsay Kemp, as had Kate Bush, who I was also obsessed with. And I got involved... You know, Bowie was often full of references and he was quite open about that. He was quite open about the fact that he would borrow and steal from other people. And through him, I was given an education in so much what we'd now call the sort of queer canon... I mean, I would never have heard of Jean Genet had it not been for Jean Genie. Mm, I would mm. never have discovered that at mm, that age. Mm. So he was more than just a pop singer to me. But pop music has always been important to me and dance music has always been important to me. And it still is. And I still listen to it a lot. But I did, I made a playlist when I was writing the book and I had it on in the background often when I was oh, writing. Oh, you should totally make that public for people to listen to it's along with Spotify. the book. It's on Spotify. It's on Spotify. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm going to look for it. Paul, we're almost out of time and I just want to know, you fought so hard for so long. Is the battle won? I think many of the battles are won. I think there was a period in the early noughties where once Section 28 had been repealed, once the Armed Forces Bill had gone through, where we, on paper and legally, we had full equality. My fear, and I've voiced this several times over the last 20 years, is that we can't be complacent. You know, in the 1980s, people assumed that the slow decriminalisation of sexuality would continue, and then suddenly we had the first anti-gay law in many, many decades, Section 28. I fear that in times of of strife and trouble and economic problems. People often look for scapegoats. And I think there's been quite a lot of targeting of our communities more recently in the media mm. from certain politicians, both here and in America. So I think we need to be vigilant. Well, I, do, I, do th- I do think, I, I, am, I am an optimist by nature, but I think we need to be vigilant. And this a survivor's story is certainly a call to arms for people who don't understand the history of it and what indeed may lie ahead. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. It's been a real pleasure being here. Thank you. A survivor's story, We Can Be Heroes, is by Paul Burston and it is published by Little A. And you've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Sam Impey and Halmi Palai. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. 